Isaiah 56 this morning. We have come this morning to the beginning of a new subsection in the prophecy of Isaiah. This is the third and final section of the second half of this book. We are coming towards the end. You can see a sort of shift in the direction that the book takes from here on out in a couple of different ways. First of all, thematically. Remember that the book's theme in the first 39 chapters was predominantly one of judgment. Now, there was great grace mixed in, the promise of hope of salvation, but chapters 1 to 39 were dominated by God's justice and his wrath and his righteousness being poured out upon guilty sinners. But chapters 40 and following are filled with hope and the promise of the gospel. And that gospel is unfolded in sort of three movements in the second half of this book. The first you could categorize with the term theology. In the first few chapters, beginning in chapter 40, 41, 42, 43, all of those early chapters up through about chapter 48 really focus on theology or theology proper. This is the doctrine of God himself. Remember those passages? Remember how it unfolded who this God was? He's a God who is sovereign. He rules over all. He speaks the end from the beginning, right? He unfolds. This is a great passage to go to when you're dealing with people who are confused about who God really is. Salvation is of the Lord. And if the, the first thing you need to know if you're going to have hope is who God is. Then the second sort of subsection in this second half of the book dealt with how he was going to bring about that salvation. And we could categorize this with the title soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. This is chapters 49 through 55, the chapter, the section that we just concluded last Lord's Day. How will God bring about his salvation? And the answer that's unfolded throughout all of those chapters is that he will bring about the salvation of his people through his servant. And you have these wonderful servant songs that are unfolded in this section, chapters especially 49 and 50 and 52 into 53, of course, which is the great pinnacle of this revelation of the suffering servant. And then in chapters 54 and 55, which we've looked at the last few weeks, he really presses home these commands to respond to the gospel. These glorious, universal gospel invitations, right? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. This is chapter 54. The gospel continues to be uh, proclaimed and sinners invited to come. And, and in chapter 55, we see how sinners will come to that table from all over the globe. I mean, the, 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 the tents is going to have to be spread out so that all of the peoples of the world can come into God's house. And of course, that's 
taking place beginning in Acts Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 people come into that tent, and then people from the Samaritans, and then people from, from the Gentiles begin to come in, and then the gospel goes out, begins to spread across Asia and into Europe, and all of this is fulfilled as we watch the book of Acts unfold, and even into our day. Soteriology. And then the third section that we come to beginning today, chapters 56 through the end of the book, is really dominated by eschatology. That might be a good term to put over these last few chapters, eschatology. This is the doctrine of the end times, the doctrine of the last things. And of course, this book culminates in chapters 50, 65, and 66, it culminates with a revelation of the final judgment of God upon all humanity and of the revelation and the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. And in our study of this prophecy, this is where we are. We're beginning at the beginning of this section of eschatology, of end times. And this is fascinating because it's also where you and I happen to be historically. We are if you want to sort of plop us into the book of Isaiah, where would we be? Historically, I'm saying, we're post-Isaiah 53, right? Christ has come. Chapter 49, chapter 42, he's ordained, he comes, he does the will of God. Chapter 53, he suffers, he he dies, he's buried, he rises again, he ascends, he's enthroned, he receives an inheritance that all of his people share in. That's where we are, right? We are in the day when the gospel is going out to all of the nations, Isaiah 55. We are in those days that are called in Hebrews chapter 1, the last days. And so, perhaps, of all the sections, we might find some particular relevance as we begin to look through these chapters here. So this is a new section, sort of thematically. It's also a new section, covenantally. In chapters 1 to 39 of this book, in the first half, Right? There's only one reference to God's covenant relationship with his people, and it is negative. And that is in chapter 24. In Isaiah chapter 24, if you remember back to that passage, you probably, it probably won't ring an immediate bell, but maybe as I put these verses up there, we can recover for ourselves this revelation that there would be God says, a coming global judgment upon all the inhabitants of the world. And here's the way he says it in Isaiah 24, all right? This is the reference to covenant in the first half of the book. And behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Right? This is going to be a global Judgment, like the judgment of the flood of old that twisted the surface of the earth. Then he says in verse 4 of that same chapter, the earth mourns and withers the world, that is the whole inhabited earth, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. 
The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws. Here's the reasons for that final judgment. They have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. This everlasting covenant is a covenant that God has made with all the inhabitants of the earth, as it says here in this passage. In other words, this is not just one of the covenants that God made with the people of Israel. This is a relationship that affects all of the people of the earth. And that relationship was established with mankind even as far back as the Garden of Eden. Remember that in the Garden of Eden, God had set down this form of the relationship, the covenant that he had with people. If you obey, you will live, right? And if you disobey me, you will surely die. And of course, he reiterated that law again and again. He reiterated it to Israel in the law. On the one hand, he said, the one who does the law, the one who keeps the law, will live by the law. And on the other hand, he said, cursed be everyone who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law to do it. So there's a blessing for obedience and a curse for disobedience. And all of us are born under that ancient covenant relationship that God has, in a sense, with all mankind. All of us owe God obedience. The only hope that any of us have apart from, from God's gracious salvation is perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. Uh, and that has been lost in Adam. We have all sinned. We have brought ourselves under the curse of God. We have sinned and brought eternal death upon ourselves. So that was the, that was the reference to covenant in the first half of the book. But now, beginning in chapters 40 and following, God promises something new. And regarding his servant, he says in Isaiah 42 and verse number 6, I will give you, my servant, I will give you as a covenant for the people, as a light for the nations. And then in chapter 49 and verse 8, he says, I will keep you, my servant, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. And at the end of that chapter, even the created order, even the heavens and the earth, clap and sing and shout for joy that God has given his servant as a covenant for his people. Isaiah 53 goes on to describe that new covenant. It is established, how? Not through not by the obedience or disobedience of Adam, but it is established through the obedient suffering of the servant on behalf of his people. He was crushed for our iniquities, right? Yeah. And 
the blessing, the reward that he earns, the glory that he obtains by keeping that everlasting covenant, the glory that is rightfully his, the inheritance that belongs to him, is shared by all who are his. He divides his spoil with the strong. Then, in chapter 54 and verse 10, that covenant, he says, would be called a covenant of peace. God will be at peace with his people finally. It'll be like the covenant that God made with Noah. I will no longer be angry with you. I will remember your sin no more. Then in chapter 55 and verse 3, he said, this also will be an everlasting covenant. It'll be the outworking of the covenant that God made with David, that God would set up an everlasting kingdom. This servant of the Lord would be the king of an everlasting kingdom. Now, the nation of Israel broke covenant with God. They broke the old covenant through their disobedience, and they were divorced and put away by God for their spiritual adultery. Isaiah 50, verse 1, we saw that. But Isaiah foresees a day when God's people would be reconstituted through union with the Messiah in his death and resurrection and brought into a new covenant relationship with God. And unlike Old Covenant, the children of Israel, of the New Covenant community, the Lord is able to say in Isaiah 54 verse 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord. And that is true of everyone whom the Lord calls, everyone whom the Lord has granted faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, right? The Lord, Paul says, has torn down the wall of separation that has been between them. And so the people who lived, unlike us prior to the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, they were saved by faith, looking forward to the covenant that God would give in the person of his Son. We are saved by God's grace through faith, looking back upon the covenant Messiah who has established that covenant by his blood. So this chapter, chapter 56, is going to continue to speak about the new covenant and about the eschatological or end-time people of God described in it. Isaiah 56, the first eight verses for this morning. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the Son of Man who holds it fast who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, 
I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, or my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Well, there are two basic sections in this text for today, and they are related. The first is verses 1 and 2. Let me take a look. Take a look at the text. 1 and 2, what do you have going on there? There is a command, isn't there? And there is an accompanying blessing or beatitude, verse 2. And the second section is in verses 3 and following, verse 3 to 8. So verses 1 and 2 is a command and an accompanying blessing or beatitude. And verse 3 and following, there's an encouragement. An encouragement that involves the hope of the inclusivity of the new covenant. Let's take note, first of all, of the commands that are given and the accompanying Beatitude. Verse 1, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. So friends, this is a call for holiness, for godliness, for righteous living. This is not just for Israel under the law. You should do justice and Keep justice and do righteousness. This is for all men. Look at verse 2. Blessed is the man who does this. This is the common term for any man. And the son of man, notice the, the language that he uses here, the son of man who holds it fast. This is literally a son of Adam. I'm talking about all of the sons of Adam here. In other words, all people in the new covenant are called to do what? To keep justice and to do righteousness. So being under the new covenant does not mean that righteous living is somehow now irrelevant. One of the promises, in fact, of the new covenant is that God will put his, what? God will write his law on our hearts. We will keep it from within I remember I once had a man who tried to defend his unfaithfulness to his wife by quoting the verse to me, well, we are not under law, we're under grace. 
Friends, Paul deals with this question head on, doesn't he? In Romans chapter 6, he asks rhetorically in verse 15, Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? His answer is what? No way. By no means. God forbid. And then he reasons this way. Here's why. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, whether it is of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You show whose slave you are by who you give yourself to in obedience. You give yourself to sin, you are a slave of sin. You present yourself to God, yield to Him. You are God's. John says something similar and warning us negatively. Um, in 1 John chapter 3, and verse 9, he says this, No one who's born of God, listen to this, no one who's born of God makes a practice of sinning. Right now, it's, it's one thing to fall into sin and to repent and to seek the Lord's favor. It's another thing to give yourself to be sinning, to just make a practice of sinning. No one who's born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning. He cannot keep on sinning because, why? Because he's been born of God. So Isaiah says, don't keep sinning. John says, he can't keep sinning because he's God's. God's seed is in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, now John says in verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Alex prayed this morning that we would be characterized by the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It is characteristic of the life of a believer. Someone who is not under law, but under grace. But he keeps God's law from his heart. God's commandments are not grievous to him. This is not to say, of course, that we become God's child by practicing righteousness. That is a works righteousness that the scripture, that is antithetical to the gospel in the scripture. No, John says it's not that we become God's child by practicing righteousness. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God, right? Righteous living is not the means by which we come into covenant communion with God. It is the evidence of being in covenant communion. This is what's known sometimes as evangelical obedience. The obedience that comes from faith and characterizes everyone in the new covenant. This is not perfect obedience. That perfect obedience was offered for us once for all, and that was the obedience of Jesus Christ himself. There is no one who goes to heaven apart from perfect 
obedience. And it is not ours. But this obedience is, in fact, Christ's obedience worked out through us by his Spirit, however imperfectly. So are you a child of God? And if so, is there evidence? Is it manifest that you are a child of God because you pursue righteousness and act justly, seek to obey him? You present yourself to him as an obedient servant. Is your life, is it? Let me ask you, just if, if somebody were to come up to you and say, is your life characterized by obedience? And you had to answer in all honesty, what would you answer? So, so I know we would all tend to almost want to pull back from that because we know of so many sins in our lives. So many things that we should have done and should be doing that we're not. And so many times we've rebelled against God even. But I want to ask you, does that really characterize you? Or are you characterized by a desire to do righteousness? To, to, to act justly? Not asking whether we're sinless, but are you not making a practice of sinning, giving yourself over to sin? That's not characteristic of a Christian. The evidence of being a child of God here this morning is you will heed these warnings. And if you are, have been living with unrepentant sin in your life, even this morning, you'll hear God's word and you'll say, Oh God, Forgive me. Let it be manifest that I truly am your child. Christian, obey the Lord, right? Treat your neighbor right. Show mercy. Be honest. Be faithful to your marriage. Work hard at your job. The command comes. Keep justice and do Righteousness, God's word to new covenant people. And then he elaborates on this in verse 2, what it means to do righteousness. He says, blessed, verse 2, is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it. That is to make it common, to make it just like the rest of the days. Blessed is the man, he says, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So this righteous living that God calls us to walk in, in verse 1, is illustrated positively, in verse 2, by keeping the Sabbath, and negatively it's described as keeping your hand from any evil. Now, I think we all of us get the second one. You know, Christians should keep their hand from doing any evil. That one is not debatable. Christians shouldn't sin. But what about the first? Should New Covenant believers keep the Sabbath? And there are some of God's people, some theologians, who say, no, no, the Sabbath is an Old Covenant ordinance and has passed away, along with so many of those Old Covenant 
ordinances fulfilled in Christ. But here, I think, is a passage which commands the Sabbath and the keeping of the Sabbath in the context of what? Of the new covenant. And you see, as we go through verses 3 and following, I think the, the whole context continues in, uh, in viewing the, the new covenant people of God. And I'm not going to go into this too much except to just be kind of suggestive this morning. And I think we could say it this way, that the new covenant, the coming of the new covenant, the fulfillment of the types and shadows in Jesus Christ has changed the day on which we are called to worship the Lord and to sanctify it unto him. This is the ceremonial aspect of that law. And there was a ceremonial aspect to its, um, it, this law in the Old Testament. But the basic command to sanctify one day in seven, I would argue, still stands. This is the moral aspect of the law. And this is because Christ has fulfilled the law of creation. The law of creation, right? From the very beginning. If you obey, you will live. You may eat of the tree and live. And you will, if you obey, if you obey me perfectly, you will enter into rest. You will enter into glory. There was kind of an eschatological glory trajectory right there from the very beginning that was resting on obedience. And the symbol of that was a day of rest at the end of a week of work, at the end of a creation week, to be observed perpetually by all men as a symbol of that covenant of works. But Christ has fulfilled the law of creation by his perfect obedience. He has perfectly completed the work that God has given him to do. And at the end of his work, he says, it is finished. And by his obedience, he has established the new creation. And the rest of that new creation comes at its beginning. It's a rest in work already done. It's a rest on the first day of the week, the day in which he was raised from the dead as the firstborn of the new creation. And Hebrews in chapter 4 says that the one who has entered his rest, which is Christ, has also rested from his works in the new creation as God did in the original creation. And it goes on to say that we should strive to enter into that rest, that glory that God has prepared for those who are in Christ. We should strive to enter that through perseverance in faith in Christ. But until then, the writer of Hebrews says, let us not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. So, I want to, I am charged to, to put it before us whether the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, 
has become less holy to you. Whether you find yourself um, thinking less of that day, whether you find yourself perhaps even, God forbid, profaning that day, making it as if it were a common thing and Well, you know, I'll just catch the live stream if I can and just try to get in some more work today. Well, the Lord calls us to come, to separate ourselves from all of the things that we think we need to do, take care of ourselves, and rest in what He's done. This is what the Lord's day is about. And it may be that you need to reconsider the Bible's emphasis. And there is a great deal of emphasis on the Lord's Day and even on the Sabbath. And that perhaps the Lord is calling you to repent, to have a change of mind about the way that you have used this precious gift that God has given you one day to draw near to Him to read, to hear God's word, to gather with God's people, to pray. You know, all of those things that you wish you could fit in to encourage your spiritual life all week long and you sort of feel kind of guilty. Maybe your Bible time's a little short and you just can't read this good book that might encourage you. And Well, the Lord has given you a, a wonderful gift, a day in which to draw near to him. And a lot of it is just that we're going to have to trust God enough to take care of us without feeling that we're going to have to work on the Lord's day. Like the Israelites who were provided for on the Sabbath day, though they did not go out and gather their food, the Lord has given it as a great gift. You trust Him. You trust Him enough to set aside all of your ordinary labors just to draw near to him. He says, To us, keep justice and do righteousness. Keep the Sabbath, not profaning it. And keep your hand from doing evil. And the reason for all of this, in the end of verse 1 now, the reason for this, you see the word for, there's the reason. For my salvation will come. Soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness will be revealed. And in the context of the end of this book, this is probably a reference to the second coming and the consummation of all things. My salvation will come. It will be manifest. It will be consummated. My righteousness will be revealed. Who is God's righteousness but His very Son? We're looking to that day when his son will be revealed, made manifest in glory. The fullness of God's salvation is coming, he says. Of course, this passage ends with the new heavens and the new earth. And in that day, verse 2, in that day, blessed is the man who does this. That is, the person who's been living righteously. Blessed is that man and the son of man who holds it fast. In that day, those who are truly living righteously will be blessed. 
because it will be evident that they are the children of God. They are united to the Savior, filled with his Spirit. Now, what will be the makeup of those end-time children of God? Because you and I, most of us, Gentiles, would have been left out under the Old Covenant. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by that which is called, by that which is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, you remember that you were at that time, he says, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is where we were by nature. But Isaiah encourages now, in the second part of the the passage, he encourages outsiders with the hope of new covenant inclusiveness. Verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will truly, surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Now under the old covenant, these people were denied full participation in the covenant community, right? In Exodus chapter 12, the Bible God stipulated that no foreigner would be allowed to partake in the Passover unless he became a Jew and followed the ceremonial law. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, some foreigners, namely Ammonites and Moabites, even if they did convert, were excluded from, quote, the assembly of the Lord, by which I assume... He means the great festal gatherings of all of God's people, excluded from that. Even to the tenth generation, God said, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And the same was true for eunuchs. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, according to the law, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. But foreseeing the new covenant, Isaiah promises hope now. Look, to first of all, to the eunuchs in verse 4. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me. This is the righteous living that we were called to earlier. And hold fast my covenant, that is the new covenant, by faith in Jesus Christ. Those eunuchs who do this, Even though these eunuchs have no seed, they have no sons or daughters, they have no one to carry on their family line, their family name, yet the Lord says, verse 5, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now those without seed, an Israelite 
without seed, like a eunuch would be. An Israelite without seed was typologically worthless. Not personally worthless before God, but typologically worthless. Because the promise is to you and to your seed. And each generation was waiting for one of their seed, one of their offspring, who would be the promised seed. But now that the promised seed has come, the physical offspring lose their typological significance. And in the new covenant, the eunuch has a name better than the names of sons and daughters. In the new covenant, he is brought, this outsider, this one who was cut off from the people of God, is brought into, he says, God's house. And within God's walls, no longer kept on the outside. And no doubt, this text was of great encouragement to that Ethiopian eunuch who read this very prophecy so many years later, Acts chapter 8. And of course, his burning question was, who is this servant who brings about such a glory for people even like me? And likewise, the new covenant has hope for the foreigner, verse 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, listen to this, to minister to him. That's a term that's usually used of priests and Levites ministering before the Lord. These foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his, what? His servants. Remember how we've read all along that God's salvation is going to come through his servant? And then we read, shockers, that not only is there a great servant, but there are going to be many servants because of that one great servant. And now, the greatest shock of all, the foreigners are going to be the servants of the Lord, ministering like Priests and Levites ministering in the New Covenant. He says, they will minister and be his servants. Verse 6, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, who holds fast my covenant. He continues to emphasize these things. Verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for what? For all peoples. Remember the Samaritan woman? An outsider? The people of God? And she was very concerned is the worship of God on this mountain that we worship on, or the mountain that you Jews worship on. And Jesus said, the day is coming. In fact, the day is now. The day of the new covenant when there is, it's neither this mountain nor that, but we all will come, as it were, I'm adding in other words of the scripture, we all will come to that one mountain of God and worship him in spirit and in truth. Here is 
a prophecy of this great moment when the Lord will bring all of these people, including foreigners, and make them priests in his house, ministering and serving and offering sacrifices. Look at what it says. They will offer sacrifices on my altar. I mean, not even all the Jews could do that. But here are foreigners who will be able to come into God's house and offer sacrifices to him. And Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, says that the Jewish nation rejected the cornerstone of the new temple, that temple that is Christ himself that was raised up in three days The Jews rejected the cornerstone and stumbled over that stone. But you, he says, speaking to anyone who will receive it, Jew or Gentile, you, he says, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood in order to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And the apostles identified those spiritual sacrifices offered by foreigners and eunuchs and people of every tribe and every background. They identify those spiritual sacrifices as the praises that God's people offer to him, the prayers that they lift up to him, the offerings that they give to him, and the obedient worship the obedient devotion that they give to him with their bodies, a living sacrifice. This, Paul says, is your spiritual worship, your spiritual liturgical worship. This is the temple worship. Whenever you say, God, take my life, take my body, take myself, and, and, and make me yours, I am your sacrifice. Work through me your will. Friends, that is exactly what is being foreseen here. In the New Covenant, even foreigners become a kingdom of priests brought to the holy mountains and mountain and into the Lord's house himself. Oh, what mercy to those who could have been cut off forever. And the Lord says in verse 8, The Lord God who gathers outcasts of Israel, that is the believing remnant of Israel, the Lord who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Which reminds me a lot of our Lord who came first to the lost sheep, the scattered sheep of the house of Israel. But then in John chapter 10 and verse 16, he said, Now I have other sheep who are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And Paul says that God takes Jew and Gentile and makes one new man. Praise the Lord. In the new covenant, God is gathering a people. And it's a people from even among foreigners and outcasts. From among those who were justly alienated from him. Surely he would include you 
if you would hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely he would include you. The grace of the new covenant can overcome any obstacle that you can imagine that might keep you from communion with God. Any unfitness that might characterize you. Your background. Your sin. No barrier is too great for his grace. So hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold fast, brothers. Join yourself, sisters, to the Lord. Keep justice. Do righteousness so that it might be evident that you are his by his grace.